You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to our Twitter space. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Mary Glantz, Senior Advisor in the Center for Russia and Europe at the U.S. Institute of Peace. The United States Institute of Peace is a national, nonpartisan, independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. I have a few housekeeping notes as we begin. This conversation is being recorded. If you speak, your voice and Twitter handle will be part of that recording. The recording will be made available for replay on Twitter and we will also publish it as part of our USIP events podcast series, which is available on our website, usip.org, and on major podcast platforms. We may use the recording on other platforms as well. We will start with a few questions for Dr. Angela Stent and then open up for questions from the audience. If you would like to submit a question, please send a direct message to at USIP or reply in the thread. We'll be moderating speaker access to keep the conversation flowing, so asking questions via DM or reply is the best way to get involved in the discussion. Our hashtag is UkraineUSIP. Let's get started. This space is the second in our series on understanding Russia's role in conflicts, how that impacts peace and security, and what role the international community can play in supporting civil society and governments impacted by these conflicts. We are joined today by Dr. Angela Stent. Angela Stent is Senior Advisor to the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies and Professor Emerita of Government at Georgetown University. She is also a Senior Fellow non-resident at the Brookings Institution. From 2004 to 2006, she served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. From 1999 to 2001, she served in the Office of Policy Planning at the U.S. Department of State. Stent's many publications include The Limit of Partnership, U.S.-Russian Relations in the 21st Century, for which she won the American Academy of Diplomacy's Douglas Dillon Prize for the best book on the practice of American diplomacy. Her latest book is Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest, for which she won the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy's prize for the best book on U.S.-Russian relations. She was a member of the Senior Advisory Panel for NATO's Supreme Allied Commander in Europe for Admiral James Stavridis and General Philip Breedlove. She, she is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She is a contributing editor to Survival is, and is on the editorial boards of the Journal of Cold War Studies, World Policy Journal, International Politique, and Miravaya Economica y Mezdenrodnia Atnashenia. Let's dive into the first question. Dr. Stent, in your recent Foreign Affairs article on The World Putin Wants, you talk about Putin's historical worldview and Putin's war in Ukraine. Could you talk a little about Putin's motivations and what he wants to get out of this conflict? Thank you very much for inviting me on. So um, for a long time, probably 
ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, Putin has been trying, and, and since he became president, he's been trying to relitigate the end of the Cold War. Um, he said famously, of course, in 2005, that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century because it left so many Russians, millions of them living outside of Russia. So he doesn't regard the collapse of the Soviet Union as a finite event. Um, and he believes that it, it is his duty uh, and it is he wants this as his legacy to undo a lot of that. Um, and then secondly, he really has had this historical obsession with Ukraine, um, you know, believing that Ukraine is not um, a separate nation or uh, and should not have its own state. He's blamed Lenin and the Bolsheviks for creating the Soviet Socialist Republic, which gave the Ukrainians the idea that maybe they really could have their own state. And so um, he, and you know, he wrote this 5,000 word treatise, uh, which he was published in, in July of 2021 uh, on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, where he said, we are one people. Uh, there is no such a thing as a separate Ukrainian identity and that Ukraine uh, needs to come back to Russia, to the Russian fold. Uh, we are brothers and sisters. Um, and and uh, allegedly, all of the Russian soldiers are supposed to take a copy of this essay to the front with them. I'm not really sure that they've done that or that they've read it. Uh, but this has really been, this has been his mission uh, for some time. The goal being to subjugate Ukraine, to conquer Ukraine, to change the government in Kiev uh, to one that's much more pro-Russian. And, you know, if he had his druthers to recreate or create a Slavic Union state consisting of Russia, uh, Ukraine, Belarus, and possibly northern Kazakhstan. Interesting. So recently we've heard a lot about, I mean, his attempts to take Kiev failed and he had to back off from that. And then he refocused on the south and on the Donetsk area. But within the past two weeks or so, we've seen a, U a Ukrainian counteroffensive with um, really shocking success up in the north near Kharkiv. And reports this morning of, of Ukrainian successes down in the south near Kherson. Um, what impact, if any, do you think these sip military setbacks have had on Putin's goals? Well, clearly, uh, he was either woefully misinformed or he just didn't want to believe uh, that his army is, has not been performing well. I mean, since day one, uh, they thought they were going to capture Kiev in three days. Uh, they even had ceremonial uniforms with them to have a victory parade the following week. And of course, not only did they not capture Kiev, they had to withdraw under fairly humiliating circumstances, um, albeit committing atrocities on their way out. So this is really... Um, so the failure to take Kiev was the major first setback to his goals. Then the Russians were able to retake a little more land uh, in the Donbass region. But with these Ukrainian successes uh, in the past couple of weeks, and even as you say today, I mean, ironically, uh, he announced the annexation of these four regions on Friday. <laughs> One of those regions is keep shrinking uh, as the Ukrainians take more territory. Uh, and the Russians themselves have admitted that they don't really know where the borders of these newly annexed parts of Russia are, which is a fairly large um, admission. So all of this 
really is, has been quite humiliating for Russia, plus the fact that it's trying to mobilize 300,000 extra people to go and fight there. And we have reports that 200,000 Russians have fled Russia or tried to flee Russia since the mobilization was announced because they don't want to fight. So uh, even as Putin announces these annexations, um, the, the Russian military seems to be on its back feet um, and really doing quite badly. Please, um, thank you for that. Um, a reminder, please feel free to DM, directly message USIP with your questions. Um, that is really interesting. Um, how much of this war do you think against Ukraine is driven by Putin's personal ambitions and interpretation of history? Um, in other words, how much of this is a Putin problem and how much is a Russia problem? So I think in the beginning, most of us uh, would have thought and said that this is really Putin's war. These are his personal preoccupations, his uh, personal obsession, if you like, uh, with sub subjugating Ukraine. And, you know, the rest of the Russian people, given the fact that this is a highly repressive system, didn't have much say in it. Maybe some of the people surrounding him, his inner circle, agree with these goals. But as the war has gone on, um, we've seen quite a lot of support for the war in Russia. Now, it's true that for people who don't have access to outside sources and only see um, government-controlled media, uh, then they get a, you know, a completely distorted picture of what's going on and of you know, so-called Nazis in Ukraine and, and the threat from NATO. Um, but there are other Russians who do have access to other sources of information. And yet somehow there's the kind of anti-Western appeal uh, that Putin has, has found some resonance in, part, in large parts of Russia so that we have public opinion data that sh has shown, you know, up to 70% supporting Putin and supporting this war, although I don't know how much one can really believe this. So I think you have to admit that it's not only Putin that has favored this operation from the beginning, but a significant number of Russians have been willing to sign on to this. I think not so much because they're anti-Ukrainian, but and some of these Russians who've signed on to this are people who have relatives uh, in Ukraine, Because, but they see this as a struggle of Russia asserting itself against the West and being a great power again. And that raises, I mean, that raises all kinds of interesting questions, because if it's, if it's Russia against the West, um, if the Russian people support the war, if it's not just Putin's war now, um, it raises questions about how we move forward with this war. Um, what do you think is the most important thing that the United States should be doing right now with regard to this war? Well, I think the United, the Biden administration could, should continue what it's doing, which is uh, supporting Ukraine militarily, financially, uh, training people. We've given uh, you know billions and billions of dollars of assistance to Ukraine. We've enabled Ukraine to push back uh, against the Russian advance with uh, advanced weaponry like the HIMARS. Um, and of course, encouraging also our NATO allies to do the same thing. And many of them are also supporting Ukraine. Um, and I think the other thing that we we have to do now, however, is as we have threats of escalation uh, emanating from what Putin has said, including obviously this discussion about the possible use of a tactical nuclear weapon, we have to make it very clear to Russia that were they to undertake something like that, that there would be very 
stiff consequences for that. And, you know, Jake Sullivan, I think on the this last weekend on the talk shows has made that abundantly clear that the U.S. government is communicating that very directly to the Kremlin. Thank you. Um, a reminder, please feel free to DM at USIP with your questions. Um, this is a lot of really interesting food for thought so far. Um, and it really makes me wonder, um, how significant is it, do you think, you mentioned the mobilization earlier and the number of people going, and you mentioned the Russian support for the war. Do you think that the mobilization um, is going to you know, crack that veneer of the information space that Putin controls and maybe change the level of support in Russia for this war? Well, I, yeah, I haven't seen any public opinion, uh, you know, data about this yet. But certainly the fact that so many of these young men are resisting going and they're posting videos about it on channels like TikTok um, and, and Telegram and things like that. So, you know, they do have their outlets. I think this is could slowly change the tide of public opinion. I mean, the reason Putin didn't do a general mobilization before this was because he wanted to avoid precisely, you know, people in the in the cities, the, the more educated urban elites who were, were going to resist this. Up till then, up till the mobilization, they had mainly sent young men from the poorest areas of Russia, the, the benighted areas where they really didn't have very many prospects and therefore signing a contract and earning some money as a soldier uh, was quite attractive to them. And they also, by the way, disproportionately have been sending non-ethnic Russians to fight in Ukraine. And there's been a backlash with that now. For instance, there was an actual a demonstration and protests in Dagestan, which is one of the Muslim republics uh, in the North Caucasus, saying this is colonialism, you're, you're drafting disproportionate numbers of us and, and not that many Slavs. Uh, and then in other non-ethnic Russian areas um, in Siberia, there have also been more protests against this. So I think that this, this mobilization from Putin's point of view so far has really backfired. I mean, ultimately, they will get more young men mobilized and they will send them to fight. But the other thing that one's seeing on all of these videos is how ill-equipped they are. You see pictures of rusted Kalashnikov rifles. I mean, the, the, the guns that they're given to take with them, we don't even know if they function properly. Uh, they're being told that they have to take all of their own supplies from home because the Russian army doesn't have those supplies to give them. So this is a this is a, an escalating situation, I would say, uh, with the the resistance to the mobilization and also just the facts of what it means to be mobilized. And so more and more people in Russia now will have a better understanding of the nature of this war than they did before. And in fact, um, someone was saying yesterday that for a large number of Russians, really, the war only began two weeks ago when mm -hmm. they, when Putin ordered the mobilization. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and it's a nice segue into what you wrote in your recent foreign pol in the foreign policy magazine recently, um, which was an excerpt from the new edition of your book, Putin's World. Um, in that piece, you note that it is difficult to see how Putin will be able to reverse Russia's fortunes, which are not doing well, as you just noted, but that so far he appears to have no intention of ending it. Um, what does that mean to you for the future of this war? How does this end with for Putin and for everybody else, really. 
Well, the war could go on for some time. I think that what Putin is calculating is that at, as winter comes, it's going to be more difficult. It's also going to be more difficult for the Ukrainians to keep um, pushing back during winter. But Putin is also counting on the transatlantic consensus that we've had withering over the winter, particularly in Europe. Uh, we've already seen a new Italian government come to power, a right-wing populist government that may well rethink its relations both with Russia and Ukraine. We've seen demonstrations in countries like Czechia uh, and other places where people have gone out in the streets and said, inflation, high energy prices, high food prices, let's rethink uh, the punishment that we're giving Russia, let's rethink the sanctions, um, and maybe our, sta our lives will be easier. Uh, you have people in Germany very concerned about, you know, how cold the winter is going to be, whether there will be enough electricity and heat for their homes, whether they're going to have to take short showers or not take showers. So that's what he is. He's waiting for this consensus to crack as we get into the winter. And I think from his point of view, he has time. And as far as he's concerned, this war can go on for some time. Now, having said all that, if we look at how badly the Russian military is doing at the moment, one wonders um, what that would mean for the duration of the war. But of course, it 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 could get on for some uh, go on for some time. Um, I do see that we do have um, listening to us Ambassador Bill Taylor, uh, who is very well versed in all of this and has been spending uh, time in Ukraine recently. And I wonder whether he would like to say something about how the Ukrainians view the possibility of the of the duration of this war we may have to um see if we can get him um <laughs> get him on the speaker so while they're waiting for that okay i think this i mean because that's a really good question and um that is key um because we we've talked about how russia sees it and how russia can continue going um and i know from talking to ambassador taylor earlier that the ukrainian motivation is very high and the Ukrainian will to resist yep. is very yep. high. And this is all a really good segue while we're waiting for Ambassador Taylor. This is all a really good segue. Are you there, Ambassador Taylor? I heard a beep. Okay. Yep. His picture is there and it says speak up. <laughs> Excellent. So, Ambassador, do you want to say something about um, Ukrainian motivation and will to fight right now? You bet. Uh, thank you, Mary. And thank you, Angela. Great discussion. Yeah, thank you. I, well, it's just in Kiev. Um, uh, and I was there you know, three weeks ago when they were just um, celebrating this first big breakthrough around Kharkiv. First of several celebrations, I will say, as, as Angela has, has indicated. Uh, it didn't stop in Kharkiv. They continued to uh, Izium. Uh, they continued um, uh, further um, uh, and, and continue today in Kherson, as, uh, uh, as Mary has suggested. So these, these successes, these wins um, have been energizing for the ukrainians i mean they are more determined than ever to push the russians back out of their country so yeah it's um it's a it's a good time uh in kiev they know that's a tough a tough winter coming as angela has just said um they know they have a lot of work to do they're counting on our support um, but these victories these wins these successes on the battlefield uh make it clear that uh, our strategy of supporting the ukrainians in their in their fight is succeeding Great. Thank you very much. Um, it's really useful for our listeners to know that. So we get both um, 
what we think is going on in Moscow and what we think is going on in Kiev, or what we know is going on in Kiev, at least last week when you were there. So um, that's a good point and a good opportunity to, to transition now. Let's open for questions that we've received from the audience. And again, another reminder, please feel free to DM at USIP with your questions or use hashtag UkraineUSIP. Um, and we already have a couple questions from the audience. The first one sort of goes towards the last question that we were just discussing with Ambassador Taylor, and that is a question from Shahid Mursaline. Why isn't the U.S. government pushing Ukraine to sit down and talk to Russia to end this war? So, Dr. Stent, do you want to take that? Certainly. Well, first of all, the assumption there is that somehow the Russians want to sit down with the Ukrainians uh, and end the war. All we know is that the Russians have said the only conditions under which they would talk to the Ukrainians would be if there's a total surrender by the Ukrainians uh, and presumably also a change of government in Kiev, which is, of course, what they've wanted from the beginning. Um, the U.S. has said repeatedly that um, it's going to be up to the Ukrainians to decide when and, and where they want to sit down with the Russians and negotiate. But right now, um, you know, unless the Russians were willing to fulfill conditions that they had discussed with the Ukrainians in March and early April, namely that they would withdraw to where they were uh, before February 24th, before the latest invasion. That was an agreement they had discussed, at least with the Ukrainians, in return for Ukraine um, not seeking to join NATO and getting security guarantees uh, from outside powers. Well, that deal is off the table now because the Russians have just annexed um, you know, these four territories in Ukraine. So this is not a time to negotiate. Um, and no Ukrainian leader would be able to re remain in power if they negotiated now with the Russians and accepted the further loss of territory after all the tens of thousands of, of lives that have been lost. Um, so I don't think that the U.S. is going to pressure Ukraine to do anything um, until the situation changes there. Great. Thank you very much. Um, we have another question from Muryuki Ndigwiga. Sorry if I brutalized your name there. Um, is it necessary for the U.S. to announce the kind and amount of support being accorded to Ukraine? Well, I mean, what the U.S. does have to announce is what the Congress agrees to, right? Uh, because, um, you know, all of the, the, the allocation, the billions of dollars that are being allocated for Ukraine, they go through the U.S. Congress. Now, I'm sure there's other support that the U.S. is giving Ukraine that we don't know about, uh, but that, that's not counted in, uh, in congressional appropriations. Um, so uh, I think that's the answer to that. Great. Thank you. I think that explains a lot because there is a lot being publicly talked about. So um, it's good to know why that is. Um, we have another question, um, and this one is really easy. Um, can you discuss how this war may end? Um, does Putin want to negotiate? What should the U.S., Europe, and the international community do if Putin uses a nuclear weapon? And I think you've already sort of touched upon these. You've, you've sort of addressed these to some extent, but do you want to elaborate on those at all? Yeah, well, I mean, at the moment, we don't know how this war ends. There are some people who think that ultimately Ukraine can win. Um, but I guess that would also depend on how one, one discusses uh, winning. Um, you know, from Putin's point of view, he doesn't want to end the war at a minimum 
and you know until Ukraine has accepted the loss of territory so far, including <laughs> at the annexation of territories which Ukraine itself is now taking back. Um, and um, I think the the Russians would also have have other demands of Ukraine. Um, but even if the Russians were to agree to a ceasefire at some point in the near future or not so near future, there's really no guarantee that they wouldn't just regroup because as long as Putin's in the Kremlin, he's not going to give up on the idea of taking all of Ukraine. Um, so another possibility would be if the Russian army really cannot recoup and if the Ukrainians continue to do as well as they can, then you could have a negotiation. But then we'd be back to a situation where at least Russia would have to withdraw to where it was on February 23rd. But right now, 90% of the Ukrainian population supports taking all the territory back from Russia that it seized in 2014. Uh, so that would include Crimea and then much of the Donbass. I think the Crimea issue is is much more complicated. But that would be another scenario for negotiation. Um, now, you know, would Putin use a nuclear weapon? Um, at the moment, um, you know, he's, he's hinted to it. He's hinted that Russia might do that. Um, he is now allowing, I guess, uh, people, more, even more hawkish people publicly on these talk shows in Moscow to accuse, not him, but the Russian military of being, you know, too weak uh, and that they should be much tougher and they should be more aggressive in Ukraine. And, and of course, Ramzan Kadyrov, the leader of Chechnya, uh, has just uh, said that what Russia should do is use a tactical nuclear weapon, as has Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is the leader of Wagner, which is the largest uh, mercenary group that's also fighting in Ukraine. Um, the U.S. is doing everything it can to communicate with uh, the Kremlin uh, and deter them um, as we said, from, from using um, uh, a, a tactical nuclear weapon. Um, you know, what should the international community do? I mean, clearly um, there would be more sanctions on Russia. Um, I think people really would have to discuss as Russia um, having broken a nuclear taboo that's existed for 77 years and having flouted the concept of deterrence. Does Russia still deserve a seat, a permanent seat on the mm. Security Council in the United Nations? I mean, there are a number of other things, clearly questions uh, that would come. Everyone would have to push back. And I think if Putin did use a tactical nuclear weapon, then Russia would lose some of the countries that are now... Um, you know, either neutral or sort of tacitly supporting it. Um, I wonder what a country like how, you know, India would react if Russia were to actually use a tactical nuclear weapon. Um, so that those are all the reasons why it would seem less likely that that would happen. But of course, we can't guarantee um, that that wouldn't happen. And it's quite possible um, that in the end, if uh, Putin really feels that Russia is is using he might is losing he might resort to more drastic means. Yeah, those are very very interesting and thought provoking points. Thank you. Um, we have a question from Joe Bodnar. What do the speakers think of the Nord Stream attack? If investigations find that Russia bombed its own pipelines, what would an appropriate Western response look like? Well, I mean, um, it, you know, many people believe that Russia did <laughs> uh, bomb, it, bomb its own pine, pipelines, um, you know, although, of course, those pipelines weren't, uh, aren't currently in use because of, quote unquote, uh, technical um, 
difficulties there. I mean, I think what the West has to do is, you know, the, if, if the Russians did this, let's say if, it's obviously to intimidate the Europeans and remind them that, you know, they could be further cut off from energy supplies from Russia. So the response to that should be, you know, what the US and other countries are doing is to provide alternative sources of energy for the countries in Europe. Uh, but it's still very, you know, it's very dangerous what the Russians did because it also has tremendous environmental um, implications, all the methane gas that was released. Um, and, and, you know, and, and so the, and these are things that, um, uh, that I think the international community should definitely hold Ros Russia responsible for. Thank you. Another question from Agnieszka Bienczyk Misala. Do you support the initiative of the Special Tribunal for the Crime of Russian Aggression Against Ukraine? I guess the, the reason why uh, President Zelensky and others have suggested it is because they think that the current institutions that exist would be are inadequate. Uh, the International Criminal Court and things like that. Um, and then there's always, of course, the question of how are you actually going to hold any Russian officials responsible? You know, for instance, how would you get them uh, to The Hague? Uh, but I think I would have to understand more about how different this um, tribunal or what it would offer that is different from the institutions that we already have to deal with war crimes, which are obviously very, very difficult to deal with. It, you know, follow-up question to that. People have talked about, I mean, we know about the atrocities that have been discovered in Ukraine, and we know people are investigating it. Um, how do you hold something, somebody like Russia accountable? Can you hold Russia accountable for what they've done inside that country? Yeah, how would you do it? I mean, you know, they were, they were able finally to bring Slobodan Milosevic and others to trial, people who were involved in atrocities uh, in the Balkans. Um, you know, because because they were able to get them <laughs> and, and take them there. So, you know, why, one question would be even physically, how would you get different individuals uh, to get them so that they could be put on trial? Um, it's it's very hard, you know, in, with a country like Russia, um, which is a nuclear armed country, it's very hard to see how you would implement something like that in holding them responsible for what them, they've done, making them pay reparations, things like that. Mm -hmm. It's a huge challenge. Unless you had a different government in Russia that was willing to be accountable for what its predecessor had done. Yeah, thank you. Um, so we have a question from Alex Rauvolu. What signs are you watching for as to whether there may be any cracks among Putin's inner circle? Well, I think you you have to watch things that are said publicly. Obviously, we don't know what goes inside that black box. <laughs> Public criticism, you have to see. So far, the criticism is of the Russian military, of individual recruiters. Local recruiters are being, uh, you know, accused of bungling things. You know, if people actually start publicly to criticize Putin himself, then I think that al already would be a, a significant indication uh, that there are cracks in the, in the unity of this elite. But we have not seen that yet. So some media reports have speculated that Russia is losing in this conflict, as we've just talked about. But they've speculated that this could lead to the collapse of Russia. Is it a valid assessment? And is that something we should welcome or be worried about? Um, I mean, it's, uh, yes, people talk about that, but, you know, unless, you, you know, 
You know, that could be much more dangerous depending on who could get their hands on what. So uh, we, we shouldn't be in favor of that. We shouldn't welcome it. And I also don't think that it's likely. Great. Thank you. Um, what pressure can be applied to Russia to end their aggression against Ukraine? Well, I mean, we've already had rafts and rafts of sanctions um, against Russia. I think the issue we face really is that the collective West, which is the United St- or North America, uh, Europe, uh, uh, you know, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, all of these countries uh, are already sanctioning Russia and putting pressure on it. But the issue we have to deal with is that much of the global South um, takes a different view. It hasn't condemned Russia. It hasn't sanctioned Russia. And China of course, is a major partner of Russia. I mean, without China, Russia really wouldn't have been able to do as well as it has since it annexed Crimea in 2014, uh, when the Chinese really came to to Russia's rescue. Um, Of course, um, representations have been made to the Chinese government by the US and, and by other countries to try and persuade them that they should try and put some kind of pressure on Russia. But China isn't interested in playing the role of an intermediary, as far as we can see. Um, And then, you know, another country which has not condemned or sanctioned Russia and has increased its imports of Russian energy, of course, is India. It also abstained in the United Nations Security Council vote condemning the annexation of the territories. Uh, India is, of course, a partner of the United States. um, And... Um, so I think a lot of effort is going to be made sort of going forward by the U- U.S., by its allies, both in Europe and Asia, to try and persuade some of these key countries um, to maybe rethink what really is a neutral stance. And that goes also for all of the BRICS countries, South Africa, Brazil, uh, as well as India, the other BRICS countries, and then uh, many countries in Africa, in the Middle East, um, and in Latin America too, including Mexico. Um, so I think that's something, it's, it's a challenge, I think, for the collective West to try and bring these other countries to a somewhat different view of what Russia is doing. Uh, and I think certainly if, if Putin escalated this to the nuclear level, then I think you would have um, maybe a, a change in view. But that that's the reality of where we are now, which is that it's only a certain number of countries, admittedly the richer countries in the world, um, that are you know trying to pressure Russia to stop the war. Yeah, thank you. And I think that's a really important reminder that um, that we need to think about what this war means to and how the rest of the world understands it and how Russia is trying to, you know, use the information space in the rest of the world to make sure that their version of what's happening gets out there and that this is something we really need to be cognizant of. Um, And and I think that's a a good segue into another question, and this is the final question that's popped up so far, but, um, and that is that, um, you know, how do you think the security architecture of Europe, and maybe even indeed the world, because you mentioned the UN Security Council, if Russia were to do the unthinkable, um, how do you think that will change or is changing as a result of this conflict? Well, I think what you see is, on the one hand, the Western alliance, if you like, revived 
NATO, after the debacle in Afghanistan, I think wasn't really sure what its mission was going to be going forward. Well, right now, <laughs> its mission is its old mission, and that is containing Russia and trying to protect the country, the NATO member countries, um, you know, from, from attack by Russia and, you know, promising to come to their defense if they are. So that kind of more classical Cold War type containment is part of the legacy of this war. But then, as I say, you have a number, a significant number of countries in the global south who are really non-aligned in this or neutral. Again, you know, reminding one a little bit of the situation in the Cold War and who don't think that they should have to choose sides in any of this. And so it's, it's a more, if you like, diffused world order coming out of this. Um, and then I think you have Ultimately, I mean, China and Russia both say that they want a post-West global order. So if this conflict is a turning point and you get a different order going forward, I don't think you have Russian and Chinese agreement on what that is. Because what the Chinese want is a new global order where they have more agency, more of a say in the rules of that order. But they want rules. And I think what if we look at Russia's behavior now and what Putin says, what the Russians want is a sort of world disorder uh, where, um, you know, where there are really no rules um, and where the use of force is, you know, one of the main ways that you achieve your objectives. So I, I, you could have more of a, in the end going forward, um, uh, a, a disagreement uh, between those two major players uh, about what the world should look like. But it, it won't look like, you know, the, as it did before this war broke out, because after all, this is the first major war on the European continent uh, in 77 years. Um, and it has really, I think it's, it's um, reshaped clearly the European order. I think the institutions that were supposed to keep that order, like the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, have really proven themselves unable um, to do anything about that, even though they've tried. And of course, you can look at the United Nations and say the United Nations was unable uh, to prevent this war from breaking out or to stop it. Um, and, you know, part of the reason is because you have these five members, permanent members of the Security Council who can veto things and, of course, do. Um, and I don't know whether in the end that will lead also to a reassessment of maybe how that organization, again, uh, 77 years after its creation, how that should be organized going forward. Thank you. Um, that's some really, those are some really important points and some really good food for thought for us to think about and consider what needs to be done in order to make the world more peaceful going forward. Um, because of things like you talked about with the failure of the institutions that we've relied upon for the past, I don't know, 70 years or so. Um, that's it for the questions that we've had from the audience. Um, I wanted to give you, Dr. Stint, a chance to make any summing, summation remarks or any main points or takeaways that you think that you would like to leave with us. Well, I think we're really in quite a dangerous moment in this conflict now, um, you know, with the Russian military not doing well, with the Ukrainians making um, advances and with uh, Putin making threats. So I think we have to have, you know, remain 
uh, steadfast, <laughs> um, really in our support of international law and, and reminding the world that what Russia has done is, you know, violated all the principles of the United Nations Charter and the agreed upon principles of international law. Uh, and and that this does have or could have major um, implications for other countries in the world going forward. Uh, and then we have to try and get through this rather dangerous moment and hope that at some point it is possible for both of the sides to negotiate with each other. I mean, all wars in the end end and there are negotiations. I just don't think that we're there yet. Great. Thank you very much. Um, I think we'll have to end here. Um, thank you for joining us for this space today. And we'd like to extend a special thanks to everyone who submitted questions and especially to Dr. Stent for giving us so much of her time and so many thoughtful comments. Um, the recording will be available here on our Twitter account for 30 days, and we'll also be publishing a permanent recording on our website and as an episode of the Events at USIP podcast. Find more coverage of this war and its global implication on USIP's website. You can follow Dr. Stent at Angela Stent on Twitter, and you can also follow me at Mary E. Glantz on Twitter. Please visit USIP's website for more information and coverage of Russia's war in Ukraine, as well as details on our next Twitter Spaces event in this series. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.